Hey everyone, we have a great episode for you today, but before we get into it, let's talk conferences. We all love them, right? They're great opportunities for us to learn, network, share best practices, and maybe party a little as well. Maybe party a little too much, who knows? Conferences are our favorite things to go to each year, and there are a couple great ones right around the corner that we want to share with you. The first one is the Data Science Salon that is taking place in Austin, Texas on February 21st and 22nd, so right around the corner. This is a great opportunity for like-minded individuals to come together, share best practices, but also learn from some of the leaders in industry and understand what they're doing and how they're doing it well and take away from that. If you haven't heard about this one, we actually did a full podcast on this. It's season four, episode one, so check it out. You'll get the whole scoop on why this is such a great conference. The second one that we're talking about is O'Reilly Media's Strata Data that's taking place in San Francisco on March 25th through 28th. This is one of the biggest data analytics conferences out there. Hundreds, thousands of people attend, so many like-minded individuals, great sessions. Honestly, they probably have the biggest all-star lineup of all time this year, so definitely check them out. They always have some great speakers, and you learn a lot from it as well, and San Francisco. Great place to have some fun, network, and just learn. The Big Data Beer team is giving you a chance to win a pass to both of these conferences, as well as a promo code to save some money off your pass. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to see how you could enter to win a pass to either the Data Science Salon or to Strata Data. And to get those promo codes, if you don't win the pass, you still get to save some money. All right, now enjoy the show. You are now listening to The Big Data Beard. This is our podcast where we explore the trends, technology, and talented people making big data a big deal. So we're on with another episode from the Big Data Beard, and my co-host is Thomas Henson, and my name is Aaron Banks, and we have Mike Watson, who's the CISO for the Commonwealth of Virginia on this particular podcast, and as I say for every podcast, I'm really excited about this one because I met Mike through, um, I think it was like a panel that we did in Richmond, Virginia, I want to say, and it was great, right? So I met with Mike a couple of days beforehand, and we went through the slides, and it was just a really, really great um, panel. It was a you know packed room. It was really great information, and we just had really great energy. And I love Mike's energy, and he's definitely is a technologist, uh, but with security like at his heart, which means everything to me. So I asked him kindly, and he was generous enough to join us, which I think is great because we always tend to have like vendors or more like um, businesses, and we don't really have anyone from the public sector. So I was really excited uh, to bring Mike on board. So Mike, can you give us a little background about yourself and um, and what you do? Sure thing. Well, and and of course, I say thanks for having me. I had a really good time as well at that panel, and it was a, uh, it was definitely a, a hot packed room, which I guess you couldn't ask for anything uh, better than that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's see what I do. I'm, I'm the chief information security officer for the Commonwealth Virginia. We have a uh, um, uh, sort of a twofold mission within Virginia. We do a lot of centralized uh, technology. So uh, my agency, the Virginia Information Technologies Agency, is in charge of providing. Um, infrastructure services out to the rest of the agencies within the Commonwealth. And we have about, you know, 67, depending on what year it is uh, or so, 
uh, different agencies with pretty much every line of business you could think of, everything from you know the public safety, you know, police to hospitals to um, uh, museums and you know businesses and and uh, you, you licensing, you name it, we, we've seen something like that somewhere under our, under our roof. Um, my group also is is focused on setting uh, governance rules and and such for how the Commonwealth is supposed to operate um, and uh, in a secure fashion. And we do, of course, we have a lot of focus on uh, data. Most of our um, approach to dealing with things is a very data centric approach, and we look to create controls and monitor all of our uh, uh, transactions around the data that the, uh, the agencies are using and sending from place to place. So um, we spend a lot of time looking at what we've got uh, going on in the Commonwealth data-wise and uh, have a lot of you know interesting insights that we kind of came for, uh, after looking at all of it. So, Yeah, that's great. So before we kind of go into the whole data story, can you just make sure you clarify for you know everybody about the difference between like a CIO and a CSO and then how like a CISO kind of differentiates from those? Sure. So um, the CIO is, is pretty much responsible for you know making sure everything's running, right? We, uh, we, equ- we equate ourselves very often to a utility at this point, right? The electric company or anything else. We make sure that our IT is up and functioning so people can get their business done. Um, you know, pretty straightforward. We all want our laptops to work. We all want our... Uh, files that we're accessing to be there. Um, we don't want our email to be unavailable. Uh, all of that stuff is what the CIO is responsible for making sure is essentially up and running. Um, our security officer role the, uh, and information security specifically is, uh, I always kind of sum it up with my responsibilities, making sure that the data remains secure and available uh, for use. We have a, a pretty large focus on making sure that um, our uh, data is not compromised in, in a sense of being uh, changed for integrity wise, making sure that it remains, you know, actually available uh, to use for, for a user, right? That's that uh, systems have the appropriate backup plans and continuity plans, um, making sure that, you know, a system isn't designed in a way that all of a sudden it won't be there one day uh, because we didn't, you know, do something simple, uh, like make sure that there's uh, appropriate power to the system. Uh, so we do, we take a lot of um, steps to make sure that there's enough resiliency uh, and um, ability to function in a, in pretty much any circumstance. And specifically in government, that's obviously a pretty heavy lift. Uh, I always try to remind people that we're supposed to be working when everybody else isn't, um, which makes things a little bit more challenging in some circumstances. But uh, it, it does also makes the job very, very interesting. Um, now, we differentiate a little bit the chief information security officer versus a chief security officer. Chief security officer can often overlap a lot, but most of the time they're focused a lot on uh, physical security aspects, um, that while we, uh, while an information security person may fo- may pay attention to, they only focus on like where the data is stored versus necessarily where all the people are and looking at you know more of the police presence kind of stuff uh, that comes along with it or um, certain circumstances you may have uh, intellectual property protection and those sorts sorts of uh, uh, differentiation than than what we look for when we're specifically looking at information. So what would you tell somebody about? you know, what's the journey to become a CISO, right? Uh, so is there like a CISO school or, you know, how would somebody get started that wants to get into Wouldn't that, that role? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That would be awesome. Uh, yeah, it would have made my path a lot more straightforward. Um, <laughs> so it, it's interesting because actually that's probably one of the the um, most frequent questions I get from people that I'm talking to in the field is like, so how do I transition over to security or how do I start looking into um, that field? And right now, I mean, there's such a demand for security folks. I tend to tell people to say, look, if you want the easiest entry, 
um, to get into the security field, you want to look at the technical side. There's such a clamoring for technical folks that are looking at, you know, security operations center who are looking for the attacks and those sorts of things uh, out there that you, if you get some sort of certification, um, like a, a one of the common ones, it could be a SAN certification or a CISSP or pretty much anything that gives uh, any type of street cred to you. Um, and then you take a look at the, uh, and you do a little bit of uh, research and understanding on how some of the security technologies work. You'll be able to get a job somewhere, um, maybe entry level, but you'll be able to rise pretty quick once you get your foot in the door, uh, if you have an aptitude for, for um, that field. Uh, generally, it really doesn't take much, but a good understanding of um, you know how things flow from one point to another. I tend to describe the security field overall as looking at try, the people try to figure out ways uh, to make computers work in a, in a way that was not originally designed. So that tends to mean breaking protocols and um, you know making thing, making computers do what is not they weren't intended to do. So you've got to have kind of a little bit of a creative mind and to understand what it is that people may um, be trying to uh, accomplish with your equipment that, that you didn't initially think of or that somebody else didn't initially think of. Um, and you know getting into that is pretty much you know if you're, if you're creative enough, you can jump right in. Yeah, that's interesting. Thomas and I often talk about these certifications and specifically like that, like the CISSP and the, and the uh, CISA where you constantly have to pay all of these like fees to them every year and do these CPEs and whether or not they're worth them. So it's interesting that you kind of brought that up. Um, I still think it's a debate. Uh, I still think all that money is a scam, but neither here nor hey, there. Look, I am absolutely with, I do think that the certification costs are crazy and I wouldn't yes. necessarily recommend somebody trying to maintain them you know, in perpetuity if, if they don't need it. But I do think it gives you a, a foot in the door. So like, it's a, it's the cheapest way, right? If you're going to compare, because I have a bunch of people that come from high school that aren't necessarily college bound, but have a good aptitude for that. Yeah. So when they're looking to go, I have no problem giving anybody an opportunity, but I know that it's a little bit harder for those folks to start. And a $600 investment is a lot easier than the, than the college, you know, uh, $10,000 investment that they'd have to make. Yeah, that's a great uh, so point. I usually start them off with that, but I don't. I'm with you. You only need you only maintain what you need for the job. Yeah, fair. Um, so because this is the big data beer, we can't always talk about security, even though we love it yes. so much. So <laughs> I was curious. So why does a CISO care about data analytics and and specifically like artificial intelligence? Well, and that is an excellent question. And generally, my my job, even though um, I've got security in the job, is to care mostly about the data, right? We don't, um, ultimately, computers aren't worth anything if they don't have good data on them. Um, and so ultimately, when we're looking at um, trying to make sure our systems are secure, we are actually looking at focusing and making sure our data is secure, especially with the way that um, systems operations are going now, right? We've got a lot of uh, cloud infrastructure and un, uh, not, not a very clear picture all the time of exactly where everything is actually sitting. Um, where our, our systems are being hosted, but we always know what data it is that we need um, and need to have available. So when we're when we're looking at our, our overall picture, um, uh, security-wise, we pay very very close attention to um, what's going on with with our uh, with the data that we've got out there, and you know we we try to take a, a number of steps to make sure um, that we're aware of what is happening and uh, where the data um, will either end up or what we're going to, what we're planning on doing with it. Yeah. And that's fair. So, you know, I know that 
from a technology perspective, there's there's a lot of concerns. And certainly from a security perspective, I have, you know, I think a lot of us have it. I mean, I certainly have it. So do you, like, how much trust do you actually have in these, like, edge technologies and artificial intelligence? And, you know, I personally get concerned about bias. Do you have any of those, like, trust concerns that you have in these technologies and with data that constantly has to be secured? Yeah. So I'm a... Um... I get made fun of all the time at home because I, you know, I'm, I'm very skeptical as far as we know when we're bringing new equipment in, but at the same time, you know, I love new technologies and some of the things that I, I think about and the things that, um, you know, I, I mention to people, I say, look, you gotta, you gotta think about this in a lot of different ways. We have new technology built into pretty much everything, you know, everything from your watch to your, um, I just, the, the self-lacing shoes and the, uh, the, all the other random gadgets that are coming out. So, you know, we, I take a very skeptical eye and look very specifically about what data it is that I'm putting on them or giving to any of those devices to make sure that, Hey, you know, it's not going to be sent anywhere. I understand what's actually on it and what, um, it may be generally transmitting, but you got, I mean, look, who can, who can say no to some of the cool gadgets that are out there? You know, I, I'm, I'm definitely looking at uh, upgrading to one of the a- Apple watches. Like I live and die by my cell phone. Um, and, you know, all that's all those things transmit data, you know, just uh, left and right as far as what you're doing or what information uh, you're putting online. So they have access to pretty much everything. Um, I've got, you know, smart home stuff at home that does, you know, garage doors and lights. Oh, you and everything do? Else. Oh, yeah. I love that stuff. Um, you know, I but I also... My, my level of privacy attached to things, I'm not all that worried about it. If, you know, they want to hear my kids screaming back and forth about, um, you know, who, who hit who first, more power to you. Um, you know, our, our little uh, echo is, is going to uh, have fascinating long conversations about, you know, uh, homework and, and other things. I just, I'm not a very private person. I think that comes sort of with working in the public sector. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember you saying that because I had always, I think it, it was exactly the Amazon and I was like, no, nah, I'm not like, I mm-hmm. can't use that. And you're like, well, I'm already out there, right? Everything is kind of like known about me. So I guess, you know, would you say then, is there a difference between security in your uh, private life and security in your public life at all? Is there, do you see a difference? So so it's funny because I kind of live by the, the concept of, um, within reason, I say this, of course, that the stuff that you, your security or your protocol should generally be able to survive somebody knowing about them, right? So if I'm saying, like, for example, I know that everybody has private stuff that they say at home, right? But in theory, I'm not going to be sitting in the middle of my house screaming whatever things it is that I don't want heard by or my neighbors or my mother-in-law or whoever else might be happening to walk in the door. Um, or my kids, right? So th- the idea is is sort of the same concept. I-, I need to make sure that whatever it is that I'm doing, I'm generally comfortable with happening in my house. If somebody really wants to see, you know, what temperature I'm setting, you know, great. Um, if somebody wants to all of a sudden change with the temperature in my house, then that's a little bit of a different story. If somebody wants to hear the my son asking, you know, the the echo for jokes, that's that's fine too. Now I take that same approach at work, where you know. For the most part, we try. We obviously aren't going to publish our, our major secrets and stuff online, but our approach and our protocols need to be able to survive somebody getting access to the room that they're stored in, or being able to overhear what's what's happening. So we have you know backup plans or mechanisms to address you know what happens when that information gets out. 
Um, and that way, you know, we're, we're relatively safe because we're planned for all scenarios. Yeah, I get that. That makes sense. So, you know, to go back to that data analytics, you know, perspective, how is the Commonwealth of Virginia using data analytics and, you know, some of the new technologies to solve problems? We are, uh, we are trying to use data any way we can, which is, which is great. So we had a new governor start uh, last year, right? They just came up on their, their, or I guess technically they're about to come up on their uh, anniversary of being one year in office. Um, one of the first things that uh, the, both the legislature and our governor did is pull together um, a, uh, a legislation for hiring a chief data officer. Uh, so we've been, uh, uh, that's great. My agency specifically has been working with the individual agencies for a while now trying to pull together um, mechanisms to share data between agencies in a, in a safe way that, that uh, maintains the privacy of our citizens. Um, but we've been working to try to figure out ways to share data to make the Commonwealth more efficient, right? So that, you know, when you go to the DMV, you don't have to re-enter all your information, you know, if you go to the Department of Health or or somewhere else, um, so that there's that there's some sort of common set of information between them all. And the chief data officer was was hired to actually, you know, s- sort of spearhead that effort and get some formal um, uh, data sharing mechanisms in place. Um, along with that, we've been trying to set up ourselves for uh, using more data analytics. So what actually spawned the, the chief data officer concept was uh, we had done sort of um, uh, proof of concepts attached to some of the data uh, data sets that we had out there. And I believe one of our, we had a, a whole contract put in place where we set up some um, uh, you know pilot programs uh, with a number of different organizations and uh, universities and went through and said, hey, there's this giant pile of data here. Let's go ahead and analyze it and see what we could come up with. We did one with uh, 911 centers. We did one with um, uh, uh, some information. I can't remember exactly what the information is now from the university, but we we went through a number of different uh, scenarios, and it was uh, interesting to see, you know, some of the the um, pieces that we came came out with. Uh, we looked to we do a lot of uh, anal- analysis. We have a whole program, a longitudinal data system through our Department of Education, which monitors a lot of stats about you know, how education's doing, how the schools are doing around the Commonwealth. Um, and they, those, those, that data is generally mined pretty frequently to figure out, you know, where do we need to focus resources? Where do we need to improve? Where are there problems? Um, where um, are there changing demographics that we need to address? Um, like there's a whole lot of different things that we look at there. And we're trying to build that more into our, our day-to-day as we move away from worrying about the technology infrastructure and the actual systems we're running on. Our focus gets closer and closer to the data um, that we're using, which is, which is great. That's where we want to be. That's where all the business decisions are made. No, that's, that's amazing. Uh, one of the questions that kind of really popped up whenever you were talking about that around the sharing of the data, and it's awesome that you've brought in a chief data officer, but how does, how's the process for starting to get other agencies and sharing kind of collaboratively, whether it's data analytics or whether it's even sharing of the data, is that, is that kind of a top down approach or is it, Hey, you know, in a case by case, you're bringing in different agencies and you're talking about, okay, we have this element. Oh, wow. You know, we, we also have this, this data as well too. So that's an, it's a really good question. And because we are a public sector entity, it is a really complicated answer. <laughs> and ultimately, no, 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 I totally understand. <laughs> I, I worked in the federal space for, for quite, a, quite a long time. So I was really excited to hear you saying, talking about the sharing and, and, and yes. I definitely want to hear how that's, 
any challenges there or any, yeah. any advice? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and it's, it's definitely an interesting thing because, you know, you find like everything that we do as far as data goes, or the reason that it's been collected somewhere is because so, at some point or another, somebody wrote a law that said, we're going to collect, or we're going to get this information in this fashion. And you're now responsible for using it in this way. The problem is, is that, you know, usually there isn't, um, corresponding legislation to say, oh, and you can give it to these other people. And which means that we have to kind of look at how is it that we can get legal authorization to be able to give this data to, you know, sister entities within the Commonwealth umbrella. And the, the number of legal hurdles that are attached to doing that is pretty significant. And on top of it, we also try to keep, and Virginia is very good at this because we're we're a state that is that keeps um, you know our citizens' privacy very much in the in the forefront of our mind. That we don't want to end up giving people the impression that we're watching everything they do either, right? You don't want to end up in a scenario where you go to the DMV and all of a sudden you get um, you know some sort of uh, notice from another department about you know missing some payment or something like that. That's generally not how it works. Um, we have uh, obviously ways to catch, you know, fraud and illegal activity and those sorts of things. But we don't, necess- we don't, you know, just because you register at one place doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden, uh, you know, in a in a problem or or that somebody else knows about you at another agency. Um, we're trying to set it up in a way that the only time that you end up uh, being known by multiple agencies is when you actually go there, right? So that it's real time. If you go to the DMV and you register, and then you go over to the Department of Health, it goes and looks for the DMV record instead of uh, the Department of Health, you know, already just having access to that record. So it makes the, the, the scenario a lot more palatable for our citizens and our, and our stakeholders. Um, but there's still this constant, you know, we're trying to reassure everyone that no, it's not a big brother scenario. We don't know everything about everybody. Um, because, you know, let, like, uh, like Aaron said, you know, it, it's not, every, people are nervous about the, the echoes and, and those sorts of things. You, you want to make sure that we're not, um, you know, putting everything together uh, in, in one giant package for just somebody to come along and see all of the all of the things about a single person. Yeah, because I remember when that like fastlane or the Easy Pass like first came out, mm-hmm. and I remember them people were thinking that they were going to start giving speeding tickets because they knew when they would get on an exit and off an exit, so they could calculate their speed. And I remember there was like they were going to find ways, and people weren't going to use them. So. Do you think people have a different level of trust for businesses than they do for the public sector? Like, do they see it a little bit differently or is it just, is trust kind of the same for both? Well, I do think that there's a little bit of, of, so I look at it. So, so that's the the number one example I use, by the way, is with the easy pass one, whenever anybody's talking data sharing, that is, that is the example I use because it's the perfect one, yeah. right? It's the, you know, you're absolutely right. Everybody was afraid that when you get on the highway that they're going to all of a sudden get tickets. Um, and, and I, I think you, you bring up a a really great point. Government is a little bit tougher as far as, you know, what the motivations are and what government may do. And it's to a certain extent, it's a little bit fickle, right? Um, you don't necessarily have much control over what it is that uh, a piece of legislation is all of a sudden going to do. And you have to use the government. You don't have a choice, right? As a consumer, I cannot go to target or I can, which is as a parent, I don't know how that's possible, but as a consumer, right. I don't have to go to a particular store. I don't have to go, you know, and do whatever. But in the government, like there aren't other people that offer our services, right? right? You, you only have one spot to go to get a license. You only have one spot to go, um, you know, if you're going to get a birth certificate or death certificate or, or whatever else. Um, and because of that, 
I think that there's a lot more um, uh, scrutiny put on the government as far as you know what it is that we're holding, what it is that we're going to do with that information, um, because we don't give consumers choice. And you know, it's a it's a tough balance to have because you have to have a a single authority to maintain information doesn't have incentive to do something bad with it. Um, but at the same time, you know, you worry that they're going to all of a sudden do something bad with it for whatever reason, or something that you don't necessarily agree with. Right. Um, and that I think causes your, your constant conflict, uh, which, you know, causes some checks and balances, but also causes some anxiety at the same time. So, so how do you balance like the need to implement technology and security and do it, you know, seamlessly and so that the citizens feel safe? So when the the nice thing about the way Virginia specifically is set up and um, uh, we do a lot to, because we provide all of the technology services to all of the agencies, that also means we get to build the security in upfront to all of the technology that we're, that we're putting out there. So when any agency needs a server, they come to our agency, you know, asking for it, anybody in the executive branch, at least. Um, so when we end up doing, uh, providing a server, that means that it has all the built-in technology. It has the antiviruses and the intrusion protection systems and all the fancy integrity checking and everything else uh, that kind of goes along with it. All that stuff is is sort of built in. So when we design our services from the beginning, we incorporate all of those security tools in place. And our model, the way that we offer uh, services is a total cost of ownership model. So we take care of replacing hardware and OS upgrades, OS upgrades and everything else, um, which means that um, you know, with the security being built in, the the agencies don't have to worry about making a second investment in the technology to support the security footprint. Um, and that ends up doing uh, wonders as far as making sure that um, all of our, our actual systems and infrastructure are, are have all the security tools necessary to, to function. Michael, to be in your role, you have to be forward thinking, right? So you're looking, you're looking at what's coming down and, and you've, you've been able to stay, stay front. So what are some of the biggest you think over, I mean, just span over the next two to three years, what do you think some of the biggest technologies or kind of trends are you looking for that are going to impact the Commonwealth? Uh, so the, the, the two biggest things are, are, you know, uh, IOT for sure. The, uh, internet of things items, we're just trying to figure out how to keep up and you know, address the fact that there are technologies that are being built into everything and technologies that we're going to need to utilize to being built in everything. And I'll tell you that the, I think the one that is probably the closest to reality are the self-driving vehicles or the autonomous vehicles, just because the amount of government interaction required in order to get something like that on the road and then make sure that it's safe on the road, everything from, uh, you know, do you give speeding tickets to uh, autonomous vehicles all the way down to what kind of oversight do we do and data uh, checking and analysis do we do on the vehicles to ensure that they're actually safe regulation wise, uh, or do you do any at all? Um, like there's a whole slew of questions that end up being uh, introduced and the, the autonomous vehicles are probably the first um, strong example of something that's going to touch almost every aspect of government um, that's out there. It's, it's a, to me, it's a really fascinating sort of use case. Um, and I suspect that there will be more of those things going forward. Um, there just isn't, I don't think a, a, uh, more glaring opportunity than that one that's out there. Um, the other part is as we are moving away from, you know, overall, as we're moving away from using, uh, or running more and more infrastructure, we're m migrating more things to the, 
you know, Amazon web services and the Azure services and all the other cloud services that are out there. And you don't have to necessarily know as much about the hardware and the server rooms and all the rest of that stuff. Um, the, uh, the, this landscape is changing a lot for where the focus is on designing security tools and how those tools are going to be, uh, you know, put in. We see a lot more focus on building security and building um, new technology components into the actual hardware themselves um, instead of having it as a feature set um, on the on the software that you're running. So it's those I think they're probably the two biggest shifts that are happening and, and probably some of the more interesting um, goings on, especially in the security arena. So let me ask a two-part follow-up question here. You seem really bullish on uh, the self-driving cars, which I love. I'm, you know, I've, I've I've been on a journey into uh, AI and deep learning over the last year. So, what do you think the timeline is, and you know, around you know, true self-driverless cars, and then also, do you think that it's going to be more of a technology barrier or a legislation, and not just with the Commonwealth, right? Just in general, like you were talking about all the different components to, that we think about whenever we talk about driverless cars. So. Two-part question there. Sorry to put you on the spot. Oh, no, please. I, I, I love random questions or good questions like that. One. He so likes good, being put on good. the spot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think that you're, you, you've, you've, the autonomous vehicles are, are the technology is, is, I'll say, almost even here, right? It's not something that I say that I think could be utilized on every road that's out there, but if we truly were ready to allow them on the roads, we probably could get some interesting, um, you know, highway transit, uh, um, uh, transportation and those sorts of things working correctly. Uh, but all of the policy related and legislative questions that are out there and the requirements that are self-driving cars be able to process and um, respond in what are effectively we have put at the level of, of human speed is going to make it a little bit difficult. At some point, we're going to kind of have to come to the, the I'll say, common decision or the, the general public decision of what we deem is acceptable safety um, in the technology that we're putting in place, right? Because we never really have to do that for people. If a person is in an accident and somebody gets injured or, or killed, you know, it's, we just declare it as an accident. No one, of course, did it on purpose. But do you then assign blame in the case that somebody cut a corner somewhere that could have saved somebody's life? It's going to probably work a lot like the safety testing that goes on to, uh, you know, on the cars uh, when currently today. But I still think that you run into some problems with, you know, how do I determine, um, how do I determine whether they could have done better or not? And I don't know that we have a, I don't know that there's really many people comfortable answering that question, um, but I do think that at some point, I would guess that fiscal pressures will push us over the edge versus anything else. When somebody comes up with a really good business model that's attractive, that's when we'll probably jump jump over into it, and the legislature and everybody else will have enough pressure um, to to make that change. I don't know. What do you think? You, you sounds like you've done a lot of thought on that too. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a couple different parts to it, right? I, I think definitely with the, you know, driver assistance, we've kind of, and I'm, I'm not sure so much on the regulation on that, but we have that, right? Like, you know, just in, you know, lane change and some of, you know, some of being able to just drive and keep you in the certain lane. So we have the assisted driver portion, but the, mm -hmm. self, the you know, the true self-driver driverless piece, it seems a little bit like, 
I don't know. Like there's, there, there, there's so many regulation hurdles and I think the regulation will be one, one portion that kind of gets there. But I don't know from a technology perspective, if we're, if we're totally there just yet, um, just with being able to, you know, factor in, like you said, for everything, like, so I'm, I'm from Alabama, right? There's a lot of rural roads There's some that aren't even marked on any of my maps. Like there's no way it's, it's going to be able to go on that gravel road. Right. <laughs> no, 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 I agree with you. No, no, no. And I, I don't think that we're there for, for the, for those types of roads. I'm talking like, if you want it, if we wanted a fleet of cars to do self-driving on the highway, right. Uh, yeah. equivalent to, you know, public transportation with rails, um, or light rail systems between major locations. You know, you you get an Uber to go to you know one of the highway locations. You then you know get your car, get in your car of four people, and it drives you to wherever it is that your nearest stop is. And that last mile is done by a person. Um, you you all of a sudden you open up some potential doors. You know, some places like the D.C. area, right? It was huge congestion over times. Uh, they have those HOV lanes in the center. Like those types of things are ripe for you know, some sort of business model that would allow that type of, of um, car, automated car to function um, where you don't need a person there. And there's going to follow a specific set of protocols merging on and merging off that's predictable and will keep traffic down. But you're right. We're nowhere near getting all of the, the rural roads and the, like the roads outside my house, right? It, it's, there's no, there's no paint on the road. So, <laughs> you know, they'll be driving in my yard versus driving in the street. <laughs> That's interesting. So, you know, we're talking a little bit about these like, te- technology and coming into the future. What do you think are some of the biggest like security challenges uh, that we're now having to face for the future? So, you know, it's funny. A lot of people, um, they, you know, they say, aren't you worried about the data of our, our citizens and stuff and, uh, or, you know, the confidentiality of the data of our citizens? And I said, look, I said, you know, my job, of course, is to make sure all of our citizen data is secure. And we, you know, take security very seriously within the Commonwealth. I said, but I bet you if you ask most citizens, their data has been exposed somewhere or another in some other data breach, right? right? We've had, you know, over many hundreds of millions of systems, but uh, uh, the hotel chain Marriott or, or whoever it was, the Starwood folks, yep. um, just a couple of weeks ago had 300 million people with their, you know, names, addresses, passport numbers. Um, and I'm sure there's some credit card numbers in there somewhere uh, exposed, um, huge data breach. And I'm sure I'm in there and I'm sure if you probably both of you are in there if you travel a bunch. Um, so, and, and I'm sure that will continue just because, you know, at some point somebody's going to make a mistake and that's, you know, sort of going to be the way it is. Um, and unfortunate, as unfortunate as it is, you know, that impacts my privacy, but ultimately it doesn't necessarily change the way I, I live my life. It doesn't cause me to all of a sudden, you know, not be able to do something, assuming my identity doesn't necessarily get stolen. Um, but the other parts of security, the integrity and availability piece, that's where it gets a lot more dicey, right? Especially in government. If we have certain systems that aren't available, you know, people, we can't, we can't pull over people speeding or we can't issue new licenses or we can't, um, uh, we may have uh, health scenarios where we can't uh, look up uh, patient records um, in hospitals, right? Those, those integrity and availability aspects of security have become way more important than they were even 10 years ago because everybody's relying on computers and computers are the only way to get certain actions done now um, without going you know, into some pretty extreme circumstances. And that causes us to, to have to shift our focus from that, how do I make sure that the data is not accessible by an unauthorized party to how do I make sure that the data is always going to be available for us to run? Um, and it's caused some you know, very interesting uh, outcomes as far as 
where is it that we where is it that we have to beef up our controls and ridiculous things like you know maintaining two computers in a single spot with the exact same data on them at all times um, just in case something happens. Uh, so there's weird things like that that we end up coming to do, and it's you know more efficient. People have been developing more efficient uses and use cases and more efficient mechanisms um, to make that type of uh, uh, protection available. Yeah, which is interesting because we always, you know, from security realm, we always talk about like risk. Do you feel like that risk ever holds you back um, from a technology perspective? I try not to let it. It is, I mean, there are definitely circumstances that it does, right? Um, Yeah. We generally, anything that is going to end up being life and safety goes through a lot more scrutiny um, than, than some of our other technology. But at the same time, you know, um, there's almost always a use case out there that we can start with and see how well it works and go from there. Um, we don't we don't do mass deployments with risky technology. That's the one thing that we've uh, we've we obviously is a no no. It should be across most organizations because then you you know multiply your your probability of something going wrong pretty high. Um, but we you know we try to look at new technologies. We try to look at, at anything that's coming across as something to say, hey, you know this is something that could could be really cool within the environment. I mean, um, uh, something simple and really wasn't all that risky. But when Netflix was first released, right, we were looking in our hospitals, especially some of our our hospitals where we have some, you know, mentally challenged folks, that we were looking for easy ways to stream video to them to keep them entertained, right, to keep to have them for something to do when there were, you know, bad weather or whatever else that was going on. And Netflix was like an awesome answer for that. Very simple, you know, thing. Smart TVs. We put some couple couple smart TVs up there on a you know isolated network and just you know let them go to town instead of worrying about you know what types of video content do we have available, right? The video libraries and everything else we had to have uh, took up a ton of space and cost a ton of money and were very difficult to manage, you know, across you know multiple hospitals. Very very seemingly you know consumer based technology that a very uh, a good you know health. Uh, benefit for a lot of our hospitals. So, and, and like I said, very simple technology example that you know we jumped in a whole hog, low risk, no no major issue attached to it. So, with balancing and kind of evaluating new technologies, one of the big things that I've seen just coming from the federal space and being in the industry for quite a long time is, you know, for a while there it was looked like you know open source was like I don't know if you know if we can evaluate mm-hmm. that, and then fast forward to now what's going on. Like, what's is there a process that's a little bit different for you in evaluating open source, or how do you how do you incorporate open source and just the qualifying and security pieces from there, or is it one of those where open source has so many different checks and balances that it gives you the opportunity to you know streamline it a little bit faster. Well, it's funny because I, you know, I always, I sort of get a, a, a little bit of a kick out of the concept of people worrying about open source as a, um, as a different piece of software. Cause when you look at fundamentally, when you look at open source versus COTS product, I don't really know where the major difference is, right? You know, you've got a group of individuals that are supporting a piece of software that happens to be stored on some public server uh, on the on the um, open source side, and then you've got a group of individuals that are writing some piece of software that is stored on some corporate server on the other side. But ultimately, there's no guarantee that either group is going to continue to work, you know, and and develop on either one of those systems for any length of time. So we look at it when we're evaluating these pieces of software to say, look, if you believe that your uh, if you can support the fact that 
hey, one of these uh, organizations is going to go up and say, yeah, we're, we're not doing this anymore and we need to find something else. As long as you're agile enough to respond to that and you're able to plan for those scenarios in your you know, strategic planning and your IT um, focus, you should be able to do any of it. Um, the open source piece of it to me, I, I've, I've already mentioned, like I'm a very, I live generally out in the open with relative except with a couple of relative exceptions, but we live generally out in the open. We know that um, exposing code is not necessarily going to cause, um, you know, more of a security issue. Uh, it just means that we've got to have compensating controls available, just like if a vendor has a security issue. Um, but I've never been a big fan of security through obscurity. Um, just because you don't know about it doesn't mean it's there. It just means that we don't know about it. <laughs> yeah, that's totally fair. Um, before we kind of go on to the next segment, you know, we talked to, you know, both Thomas and I talked to um, businesses a lot with regard to data analytics. And one of the things I thought was interesting that I, I really wanted to make sure that we just kind of touched on is this position of the chief data officer. Because a lot of customers, or I'm not a customers, but a lot of, you know, I was um, like organizations are using data. They think that they're like a data-driven business, but they don't have a chief data officer. Like, can you just talk about the importance of like why you guys implemented a chief data officer and and why it's necessary? Yeah, man. Look, look. It's if if there's any organization that's going to have duplicative data sets and inefficient uses of data, it's going to be an, a government organization because we just we have laws that have been around forever, and and people kind of tend to to coast in a way. Um, you know, that you continually do things the way that you've done things before without necessarily looking at the full picture. And that was one of the things in the data realm that we have a lot of work to do. And most organizations do have a lot of work to do. You think how many times almost anywhere that you go, you almost always interface uh, with a customer. When you're interfacing with a customer, you're collecting their name, address. And if you're, you know, consumer driven business, their uh, uh, credit card number. Um, maybe it's email address instead of physical address, but you're always collecting the same information. And there's m very few companies out there that do a good job of looking at all aspects of how they collect their data and figuring out ways to bring their data into either some sort of common data lake or um, you know some mechanism to review uh, and and I'll say pull out the most useful bits of data in the in the, all of the the buckets that they they pull their data from, um, and put it into some meaningful format. I mean, it requires data standards. It requires some level of consistency across any of the business units within uh, an organization. In our case, it's it's across agencies, and then the business units within those agencies. It's not a small job to have to deal with, and there's not a single point person a lot of times that is going to be. Um, you know, identify that's going to be in charge of making sure that everybody's following these things or that they're incorporated into the procurements or that the technology that's being brought to the table can actually support, you know, whatever the requirements are to actually do that data sharing. There's a lot of um, logistics that go into and planning that go into it. And I, those data officers tend to be that planning body. Yeah. So I think that's great. I think it's, you know, thank you for kind of ending on that note, because I can't, I just can't stress you enough about like you, I feel like you can't, I mean, I, I know it's an extreme situation and I know that a lot of, you know, organizations need to do data analytics, but to, to start without a chief data officer that really, you know, in that beginning kind of stages to understand the data, you know, the, the security behind it, you know, what is necessary for what additional data you need. I just think it's, 
I think it's nice to kind of have a position like that that's really deemed 100% to, to getting it kind of clear and concise. You know, you, you say that you have a lot of organizations, when Thomas had asked about putting, you know, getting data from different organizations, I think, you know, businesses run that same problem, right? Everyone has these silos. They don't want to share their data. They don't want to kind of like do stuff. So I think it's a huge challenge and hopefully a role like a chief data officer could help um, along those lines. So thank you for that information. I really appreciate it. So um, before we kind of end, we kind of, we're going to pivot a little bit and do a segment called Rapid Fire. We've learned a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal. In a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. Pew, pew. What's the latest book you've read that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh, geez. Uh... Oh man, that's like that's like way outside of where I was expecting to go. All <laughs> I right, know. Uh, <laughs> I love it. The latest book I read. So I'm a big sci-fi geek, um, which okay. is which is um, uh, you know I guess the first step to recovery is admitting you've got a problem. Yeah, um, it is. It's true. So the book the book that I'm actually reading right now is Ascendant. Um, I'm I like uh, I like Sanderson's one of my favorite. Brandon Sanderson's one of my favorite authors. Um, I just finished reading his his. Uh, latest release, I think it was uh, Skyward. Um, you know, kind of a, a this one was more like uh, you know coming of age space sort of tale. It was is kind of a fun read. Um, but I, you know, there's uh, let's see, what are the other ones that I've read recently? Um, I read uh, the Spellmonger series, which is another good one that I like. But I'm I'm a big like I said sci-fi geek. I like the uh, the random technology. Um, things. I think it kind of keeps you as a technologist. It makes you think a little bit differently about how you approach, um, how you approach things because it, it, you know, it gives you kind of a a general, Hey, I think about it this way, but you know, if you didn't have all of the sort of rules that you have to set, that you have to live by now, what other things are possible? Um, And so I kind of like that art of possibility. I was always a, a big, you know, Star Trek geek growing up and a couple other things that I probably fit the, the, reasonable the relative description of a nerd or geek or whatever you want to call it (laughs) (laughs) that's great that's great so um i'm trying to think about like your baseball team like i'm assuming your um nationals team but you know like in baseball they have like this walk-on song so if you like what would be your walk-on song oh what would be my walk-on song um let's see well let me let me make sure i'm actually from outside philly um, I'm a, I'm a, a, a Richmond ger- transplant. So if anybody and my friends or family were listening, they kicked me in the shins unless they said, <laughs> I'm actually a Phillies fan. Um, but, uh, nationals great. are pretty good too. I like them too. Uh, but, uh, you know, Philly is always, always number one. Um, the, uh, let's see, walk on song. I, so I am not a huge music person. Um, okay. my wife, my wife is the one who's a, who's a huge music person. So, um, whatever it is that she's listening to is sort of what I'm, I'm stuck listening to. Um, <laughs> my kids, my kids are way better at it than I am. Um, you know, but I, I don't have a necessarily specific, uh, type of music. I probably listen to the most music in the nineties. So I got all the, yeah. like, the grunge stuff, uh, you know, in my head and, and those sorts of things, but I'm, I'm pretty flexible. It also depends on kind of what mood I'm in. Yeah. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know that I have a, a specific single song, um, but like I said, I'm not a big music person, so <laughs> that's okay. We'll give you like a nice. I can imagine you. Um, what was it? I was doing specking out for our security panel at one of our conferences, and I did the beginning of a um, of um. Oh my god, I'm only I'm blocking on it now. Anyways, we'll give you a good '90s, a good '90s band. It was a Chris Cornell band, 
a uh, Soundgarden <laughs> song. So I'll, yep. I'll, I feel like you're more of a Soundgarden guy. We'll give you that yeah. kind of song. I can I can definitely do that. <laughs> <laughs> so what piece of like personal technology is making your life worse? Oh, what's making my life worse? Uh, let's see. So I I am very careful about researching what types of technology it is that I bring into my home. I'll say the one. The, the, I'll say the most frustrating set of technology I think that we've got right now is our entertainment technology. Um, I don't think that the experiences are nearly seamless enough. And it's and I can always measure how bad a technology is, is for a user by the number of phone calls I get from friends or family about <laughs> how to do something. That's right? great. <laughs> so I very rarely get a lot of computer calls at this point, right? We're saying, I don't know how to do X, Y, or Z things, which means to me that most of the user interface experiences have gotten to the point where most people can figure it out. And that's, that's great. But right now, you know, televisions and um, entertainment systems like sound systems and those sorts of things, people still can't quite figure out how to use. It's the, hey, I want to run Hulu on this thing and I can't figure out how to do it. Or I want to run Netflix on this thing and I can't figure out how to do it because we've got such a fractured ecosystem with, you know, Amazon lets you do certain things and, uh, you know, Google television lets you do certain things. And they're just, it hasn't all been integrated very well yet. And I don't think that, you know, anybody sort of put a, a specific technology in place. So that means that my wife and my kids are always asking me, wait, how do I get this to show up on, on this thing, um, on this, you know, computer. So, or on this, uh, television, um, you know, when they want to watch loud house or whatever else it is that they're trying to watch at any <laughs> given point in time. That's great. Yeah, that so, makes sense. Totally makes sense. On that note, though, what's your biggest money pit right now? Oh, my biggest money pit? Uh, well, I mean, of course, I own a house, so there's always that. Uh, but <laughs> my my biggest pieces, I think, are probably um, I, I I'm trying to do I'm trying to incorporate more smart technologies in the house, uh, which means you know decent investment, specifically on cameras and things like that. Um, we have uh, every so often, especially around the holidays, right? You get the the car people walking up to cars and trying to, you know, open things up and those sorts of things. And I've been trying to get more, uh, you know, a security system in the house. I also have three kids, right? Uh, one of them is, is old enough to be home by herself a little bit, but I'd much rather have something that I could talk to her on. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, trying to do a little bit better job of introducing some of that stuff, um, which is not exactly a huge expense, but it's not a, a small expense. Um, I'd love to say something better like, hey, vacations are my money pit or, uh, <laughs> you know, something like that. But those are generally generally where I'm where I'm at. Yeah, that's cool. So you mentioned like Hulu and Netflix and stuff like that. And obviously yeah. there's cable. So what show are you binging on right now? Uh, I was uh, I was doing the uh, last season of Black Mirror recently. Right. Um, and I, I'm looking forward. To, I don't know if you saw the new Netflix one, the Bander or whatever it was um, that was out. That's a, sort of a choose your own adventure one. So yes, I want to go check that it. one out. Yeah. And then of course we, uh, we watched bird box like everybody else, which was, um, so somewhat entertaining. My, my wife was like, uh, a little bit frustrated when it was done, but me being the sci-fi geek was like, Oh, that was pretty neat. Uh, oh, that's cool. Yeah. So that was another good one. But we, you know, I, I am also a, a bad, uh, bad horror flick person. Um, so I will watch, especially late night while I'm working on something on my computer, I'll pretty put pretty much anything on. I love stuff by Sam Raimi. Um, you know, you know, the normal bad horror flicks that are out there, the, the Sharknadoes and the Megs and all the rest of that stuff are all good. I'm actually want to see the, uh, the, the recent, the musical with the zombie in it that they released over Christmas. I haven't seen that one yet. So 
Oh my god, you're Weird. getting all excited. I love it. It's so great. <laughs> all the uh, all the bird box memes have like convinced me and my wife that we have to watch it this weekend. Yes. So. I know. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. And then so the last question is where is the next interesting place that you're going since you were talking a little bit about vacation there? Yes, I would. Uh, I I honestly don't know where my next interesting place it is that I'm going to go. But I think the uh, uh, the next place I'm probably headed to is um, uh, either New York or Delaware to kind of you know I'm going up to see some family. Um, I I'm trying to figure out vacation for the year. I'm hoping that I'm going to do it. That's probably why it's on top of mind. Um, we'll see where we end up. I'm hoping it'll be a little bit warm. Though I'm one who likes to kind of get out and do things. So we'll. You know, I want to try to plan a camping trip. My daughter actually asked me to see if she could go stargazing. And I'm looking at, uh, I don't know if you know much about, I'm not, a, I do, I knew nothing about any of these questions. My daughter asked me random things and then I go Google it and figure out what it is I want to do. So I, I was looking, uh, since I said I live out, I grew up outside Philly, there's actually a national star park that's in uh, Northern central Pennsylvania, um, where they don't have any lights and anything else. And you can go out there and see some really cool um, parts of the star. So I was looking to see if I could plan a trip for her in the spring or summer. Oh. Um, I thought that'd be kind of fun to do and, yeah. you know, take her out there. So that might be the next interesting place I head to, assuming I can figure out how to, how to get everything uh, lined up to make it work. Yeah, that's great. That sounds really, really nice. Yeah. Oh, good luck with that. Uh, and hopefully good, you know, Thomas and I, I think are like the last two people in, in the States that have not seen Bird Box. So hopefully we'll bring that <laughs> out this weekend. By the time so we release the, by the time we release the podcast, hopefully everyone has uh, watched it. Yes, it definitely. It is one of those things where, you know, it, it was it was the the plot was not exactly stellar, but the acting was really good. Yeah, and you kind of you know you kind of get the like the suspenseful moments and, and the sort of thing. So as long as you you don't have to worry about too much about a, a whole solid start to finish plot, you're good. It's an entertaining yeah. kind of movie. Well, that's awesome. But, yeah. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been great. And you're, you know, I just love how you talk about technology and security. That means a lot, obviously, to me. So thank you so much for your time. And I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. And, you know, uh, you guys, uh, I always uh, enjoy listening to your podcast. So keep it up. And if there's uh, anything I can ever do, let me know. Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard Podcast. The music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. Check him out on iTunes or Spotify. All right. So now let's talk about conferences again. How can you win a free pass to either the Data Science Salon that's taking place in Austin, February 21st and 22nd, or O'Reilly's Strata Data that's taking place in San Francisco, March 25th through 28th. All right, so if you're interested in the Data Science Salon, all you have to do to be entered to win a free pass is subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's that easy. When you subscribe, you're entered to win. And for O'Reilly Media, if you're interested in Strata Data, all you have to do is subscribe to our Bright Talk channel, and you're entered to win. We'll be drawing both of these conferences on February 1st, and we'll let you know right after that. So good luck. If you don't win, fear not. We do have some great promo codes. So for Data Science Salon, it's BDBeard, B-D-B-E-A-R-D, 19, and you get 15% off. For Strata Data, it's PCBeard, P-C-B-E-A-R-D, 
for 20% off. What a deal. Check them out. We look forward to seeing you there.